Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. So far in our series here focused on the Guadalcanal campaign, it's becoming pretty clear that the focus for both sides is the airfield, Henderson Field. We talked about the first attempt known as the Battle of the Teneru, where around 900 Japanese attacked the American lines, were beaten back. We then talked about a fight to the south of the Americans' position in an area known as the Lunga Ridge during a battle that came to be known as Edson's Ridge that saw over 6,000 Japanese thrown against various positions up and down the American perimeter. Now, they were pretty heavily beat back in that engagement. So they fell back, regrouped, reorganized, and prepared for another attack. This time, they planned to have around 20,000 to hit the Americans, you know, end it once and for all. Unfortunately for the Japanese, they would once more run headfirst into lethal Marine lines, manned by warriors like Sergeant John Bassalone, the hero of Guadalcanal. Now, if you've been listening for a while, we've talked about John Bassalone before. There was a two-part series, I think, back in July. But if we're going to talk about Guadalcanal and the Battle of Henderson Field, it's just a story you can't ignore. So my plans here to not not uh, have the same episode that we had back in July is we're going to talk a little bit more on the lead up to that fight with a few different angles. Now, the theme on Guadalcanal is that there's going to be a continued reinforcement on both sides, both the United States and the Japanese. The Japanese are struggling with their reinforcements. They don't have much freedom of maneuver during daylight hours. The Cactus Air Force, the the small American air force that's uh, at Henderson Field in Guadalcanal, they don't control the skies. That's not the right way to say it, but they can do some real work against slow troop transports for the Japanese and have sunk a fair amount of Japanese ships trying to reinforce those positions. So pretty quickly, the Japanese adapt. And we saw this, I mean, very, very early in the Guadalcanal campaign, where you see a lot more Japanese movement, logistics, attacks at night, whereas the Americans tend to have more control over daylight hours. And that's what's happening in the reinforcement game and the resupply game here as well. The Japanese know that in order to reinforce the island efficiently, they're going to have to make the entire run, not just the landing, but the entire movement, nearly all of it, to Guadalcanal and back from various staging locations around the Southwest Pacific to drop off troops, equipment, you know, weapons, vehicles, tanks, maybe, um, food. They have to do all of that under the cover of darkness because as soon as the sun comes up, any of these slow troop transports or any ships for that matter are at risk of being hunted down and sunk by the Cactus Air Force, as well as any carrier forces that are in the area as well. What that means for the Japanese is they can't use their troop transports, the slow barges that are designed to bring mass amounts of men and equipment to a battlefield at any given point. You know, think of what you would see off the coast of Guadalcanal in the first few days or off the coast of Normandy after D-Day. I mean, massive ships that are designed, they're, they're, they're loaded full, you know, brimming over with ammunition and food, tanks, artillery pieces, and they land right there on the shore. That's not, that's not feasible for the Japanese at this point in the conflict. 
in this specific area. So what they establish is kind of a night run. It becomes known by the Americans as the Tokyo Express. And the Japanese would use predominantly, um, or, or they would use mostly faster ships in these troop transports, right? Like destroyers. A destroyer might be faster than a troop transport, but it's also not designed to carry you know, artillery pieces to an amphibious fight. That's not what it's there for. So there are going to be quite a few issues doing this. It's going to be slow. They're not going to, you know, it's not the perfect scenario. They're not going to get everything they want and everything they need for this fight. And it's the kind of resupply issues that would plague the Japanese for the entire Guadalcanal campaign. But by early October, they've added about 15,000 additional troops to the island of Guadalcanal. That's no joke. But while this is happening, the U.S. isn't just digging in and, and holding on tight. The Americans are reinforcing as well. And in late September, around 4,000 Marines from the 7th Marine Regiment arrive, as well as a little over 2,000 from the U.S. Army's 164th Infantry Regiment. This is a cool story in of itself. This is a National Guard unit from North Dakota. They would end up being, they arrive in Guadalcanal in early October and would be, I believe, you know, October of 1942, the first U.S. Army unit to fight on the offensive in World War II. So, of course, we had some army units at places like Guam and the Philippines that were fighting mostly defensive battles after um, the attack on Pearl Harbor. But the 164th would actually take the fight back to the Japanese. Pretty cool that it's a National Guard unit. I always like when things like that pop up in here. Anyways, by this point, when we get towards you know early to mid-October and we're looking at, at troop numbers on Guadalcanal, we're looking at about 23,000 Americans and 20,000 Japanese. Now, it's worth noting, as is the case in all of these battles, for the U.S., that's not 23,000 riflemen and machine gunners and mortarmen. There are cooks. There are admin. There's radio men. There's, there's logistics folks. That doesn't mean that they all can't, and in some cases, especially during the Battle of Henderson Field, will pick up a rifle and plug the line. But when we're talking about, on the U.S. side, actively manning the defenses in preparation for an attack, you're not playing with 23,000. It's going to be quite a few less than that. But the same holds true for Japan. They're not going to hit the American lines with 20,000. They also have cooks and admin, logistics, medics, um, support and staff, things like that. So it's not really 23,000 against 20,000 in this case. The actual number of fighting troops is going to be a, a fair amount lower than that. Now, if we move back to our last episode, we talked about the Battle of Edson's Ridge. The Japanese moved back we could say retreated um, and regrouped in a couple different areas. One of those was west of the American lines across a river called the Matanacau. But the U.S. knew they were there, knew there were scattered pockets of Japanese all across the island, and they didn't want to just sit and wait. The, the, the Americans at this point don't have enough troops on the island to really push out offensively. They can barely hold the perimeter, right? As we saw at, at Edson's Ridge, they barely have enough to hold on um, just around the airfield, they don't really have the ability to spread out and, and take the whole island. But there's some thoughts, pretty good intelligence, or thought to be pretty good intelligence, maybe I should say, that there were small pockets of Japanese reorganizing west of the Matanikau River. So in late September, early October, there would be a series of actions, or what they are called, um, across the Matanikau. There would be some success, there'd be some failures. Some American units nearly cut off and killed entirely. But the Americans had overall 
relative success, at least breaking up any real opportunity for the Japanese to reform and stage west of the Matanikau. It's just enough action over there to kind of keep them on their toes. But going back to the to the intel point, um, looking west of the Matanikau, the Americans at this point thought there were around 400 Japanese. There were closer to 2,000. So, you know, more than once, and we're going to hit it again here, I'm going to mention that the Japanese intelligence is off. They think they're hitting the American lines. You know, when they come in towards Henderson Field, they're going to think it's around 10,000 Americans. And like we said, it's over 23,000. Our intel is better in some ways, but we also make plenty of the same mistakes. And these actions around the Botanicau cost a lot of American lives because, again, we underestimated by a magnitude of five or more um, moving west of the Botanicau. Now, because of the kind of probing a little bit west of the river, the Japanese decide for their next attack, they're going to push south again, kind of in and around the Edson's Ridge area, which, you know, to take it back, big picture, they're getting kind of poked in the eye to the west. To the east, they've had the issue over on the Tenaru where that first attack didn't go well, and the Americans have really built up their defenses there. It kind of points to the unlikely avenue of approach, the less defended because the Americans aren't going to expect it as much to the south kind of replaying what we saw during the Battle of Edson's Ridge. To do this, remember the nasty, nasty, thick jungle you have to get through. The Japanese cut a trail, hand cut a trail, 15 miles through the jungle to move their troops into staging positions for the fight. To give you an idea of just how thick that terrain is, I mean, they're not moving vehicles through there. Um, Each soldier, in addition to their rations, and their basic load of ammunition and food and, and supplies has a artillery shell strapped to their back as well. Now, how else are you going to get very many uh, rounds to the front if everybody's not carrying their own, you know, carrying an extra round on their own? But just add that to it. It's already a challenging move walking through that jungle, and they're uh, they're adding an artillery round to their backs on top of it. Now, the goal here is that. 20 or 21 October, they're going to kick off this attack on the American lines. By the 20th, the lead element thinks they've reached their position. But again, how nasty and thick this jungle is, they're actually eight miles away. They're eight miles from the American position. They aren't even close. What that does in this case, and it's kind of the Japanese plague on Guadalcanal. Again, we're talking the resupply issues of being able to get the equipment they need ashore they're already short on rations. They didn't plan on this attack taking, you know, a month. It was planned to be a couple days. So when you immediately, before you even start the fight, delay everything 24 hours or more, it hurts your, hurts your chances in a lot of ways. And in this case, the Japanese, before the fight even begins, are having to conserve rations, go down to half ration a day or less, again, before they even engage in combat. Now, Sergeant John Bastalone was part of the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines under Lieutenant Colonel Chesty Puller, a Marine legend. The 1-7 Marines are tasked to defend the south of the lines. You can see where this is going, right? Along, in and around Edson's Ridge, that area. The battalion is around 700 strong. And at this point in the campaign, in early October, I guess it's mid-October at this point, they are asked to defend 2,500 meters of the front. So do that math in your head. 
700 men, 2,500 meters. And this isn't a wide open, you know, let's, let's look at Normandy actually as an example. When you had the defenders on Normandy, the German defenders, they had a pretty substantial field of view, right? They could see up and down just Omaha beach, maybe right up and down the beach pretty easily from those high bluffs. They could see uh, quite a ways out in every direction on Guadalcanal, these frontline trenches that are dug in on the edge of the jungle sometimes can't see 50 yards. So it's not as though one man can cover easily two, 300 yards in any direction. It's kind of the opposite. You're going to have to have a lot of men manning that line to make sure there's not a Japanese intrusion through a, a break in the line. Now, after a couple delays and some attacks along the Matanikau, this is a multi-pronged attack by the Japanese. The main attack starts to materialize around 2200, 10 p.m. on 24 October as the Japanese kind of stumble into the American lines. Remember, the issue of moving these troops through the jungle is that you have this long spread out train of soldiers and equipment. So by the time the first troops get in battle, you still have folks that are going to participate in the fight that are two, three, four miles behind. They might not get there till the next day in some cases. So it's not like the Japanese are able to move, you know, 3000 into the fight and hit them all at once. It kind of plays a little bit into what we would see here and in other fights, kind of the human wave attacks where one wave comes on and then another and then another, because that's as they're getting to the front. Now, this first probe, we'll call it, in the evening of the 24th, is pretty well beat back. Um, but a larger force is going to strike just after midnight, really kicking off the main attack. Sergeant Bassalone leads two, mas two machine gun sections in the 1-7 Marines, and they sit behind a pretty substantial defensive position on the perimeter here. They have cleared out areas of the jungle to allow a you know better field of vision for the machine gunners and the riflemen, anybody on the line. They have quite a bit of barbed wire. They have the area registered with mortars, artillery, meaning the mortar and artillery from a couple different positions already know the coordinates to fire. So Barcelona and his men don't have to come up with a fire mission. They can just say fire target Alpha Bravo one, two, three, four, whatever it might be. And they know that the artillery like that will be coming down 300 meters to their front on a certain spot, wherever it might be. They have the machine guns overlapping fire. They have trenches. Trench might not be the right way to say this. They have communications lined, communication lines created behind the front lines to allow for you know, shuttling ammunition or wounded or reinforcements to and from. They're not dug in like we would think of in terms of World War I trenches, but they're cut through the jungle, maybe is another way to put it. Finally, there are some warning devices out along the American lines. I mean, remember, this is the Japanese attack at night. We don't have searchlights pointed in every direction. It's dark. The jungle's dark. So we put out these, Barcelona and his men put out some of these um, early warning devices. And some of them are really, really, really simple, like cans strung to barbed wire with some pebbles in them. So if something shakes the barbed wire just a little bit, you hear the can shake. It sets something off. Now, this main attack kicking off in the early morning hours rattles down the line. And at around just after one o'clock that morning, the Japanese, a, an entire Japanese company begins to charge Barcelona's position. They're tipped off when one of those triggers, the cans with the pebbles, 
shakes a little bit. They open fire. Barcelona's men open fire. And think about this. When the muzzle flash goes off in the dead of night, it can be almost blinding from dark to a flash right in front of your face. But it also lights up the area to a degree in a split second. When those muzzle flashes started to go off, the Marines could see for the first time the dozens of men charging their position at close range. It's like a scene out of a horror movie, right? Like the flashing lights. That's what this would have been right out the gate. Except those flashes are coming from their machine guns and rifles and pistols doing everything they can to keep these waves of Japanese attackers at bay. Remember, this was a still at this point in the war, and it would come and go throughout the conflict, but the idea of a human wave attack was prevalent in the Japanese military for a period of time. Now, as mentioned, Barcelona led two machine gun sections in this fight, and in this type of engagement, that's keeping the Japanese at bay. It's not the riflemen. It's going to be the automatic weapons, the machine guns. And pretty quickly in the fight, one of his team is taken out by enemy fire. They might not be able to hold this position with just one machine gun out of the fight. I mean, it's that it's that much on the line of, of uh, being able to hold out or not. So Barcelona, under fire, again, we have these communication lines running behind the front line, but not trenches. So under fire, he runs back, picks up a new machine gun, an additional machine gun, as well as a ton of ammunition, about 90 pounds in general, and moves back and forth over 200 yards to move that new weapon into position. Now, while he's doing this, again, in the dead of night, in the middle of an enemy attack, carrying 90 pounds of gear under fire, he comes across Japanese soldier who has infiltrated the lines. As mentioned, it's so hard for the Americans to actually have eyes on every part of this line. And sure enough, some make it through. Barcelona, without hesitation, pulls out his pistol, shoots the Japanese soldier dead and carries on to the front lines. He gets this new machine gun up and starts moving between positions. His men, his Marines that he's leading are relatively new. They're young, relatively... They are new. They're young. They're not as experienced as he. So he's helping move ammunition between the between multiple positions. He's assisting them with barrel changes, and this is something that you know it's it's real life of combat. This is something we we gloss over a lot in movies and certainly in games. But these machine guns can't just fire forever, even with an unlimited supply of ammunition, which never exists. The barrels get too hot. You have to fire in bursts. Take your time. In an attack like this where you have an unlimited amount of targets, that can be a challenge. But it's not just a matter of conserving ammo. It's a matter of conserving your barrel. Because if you fire too many rounds too quickly, the barrel will melt at some point. So part of a machine gun team's job is to recognize how many rounds have gone through the barrel, how quickly, and when do we need to swap that barrel out. Machine guns come with usually a couple spare barrels that are always hauled along with the weapon system and they can be swapped out pretty quickly, but it's, you know, it's one thing to practice on the range, but when you have a Japanese squad or platoon, five, 10, 20 charging at you, you can't do that fast enough, right? Actually changing out the barrel. Think about that situation. If you just keep firing, when are you going to have the opportunity to stop? You might not ever. So you've got to wait for just the split second 
to be able to change that barrel out to where you won't be overrun. That's the situation that Barcelona is stepping into up and down the lines, helping his men with those barrel changes because he's more experienced and able to get that done just a little bit quicker. And in a fight like this at close range with overwhelming enemy soldiers charging your position, that split second is life or death. Bassalone continues between these two positions until he finds a machine gun or until one of the machine guns goes down. There's some issue with it. And in the dark, under fire, with the enemy charging, he repairs the machine gun, gets it back up and operating. Again, this is something where these aren't, you know, it's a mix. They're on the one hand, pretty simple machines. On the other, they're not so simple at all. But it just speaks to his expertise. It speaks to his expertise to be able to, under fire in the heat of the moment with his heart pumping, the adrenaline going to be able to figure out what's wrong with it, get it back up and running in, in no time at all. Barcelona stays at that position and mans that machine gun for the duration of the night. Despite enemy grenades, mortars, machine gun fire, small arms landing all around, he holds. He holds the line. Reinforcements would be added to Barcelona's position around four o'clock that morning. So we're talking about three hours of continuous fighting. And by that point, it was only Barcelona and two other Marines that remained. Now, reinforcements are coming up to the American lines in a very similar way that the Japanese are getting reinforcements to their lines. It's not fast. It's not like an entire battalion shows up on the spot. They they start trickling in little by little. So reinforcements doesn't mean that Barcelona is done. And in these light lulls in the fighting, if you will, throughout the rest of the night and into the next day, Barcelona and his men have to sneak out in front of the American lines to clear a path for the machine guns. The Japanese came on in such strength at a few of these positions that the bodies were literally stacked two, three, four high at times. And the machine guns were sitting low to the ground. Couldn't see past them. Think about that. Literally bodies stacked two, three deep in front of this position. So Barcelona's men move out, have to push the bodies over. So they have fields of fire for when the next attack comes. We know it's coming. Barcelona continued to fight throughout the day into the next night with his hands blistered from changing these searing hot barrels in the midst of combat. I mean, we have gloves for this, but it's another one of those things where you have to change. It's life or death. You have to change it and you have to change it now. But think about the you know, severe burns on your hand and just dealing for the rest of the day for more than a day. I mean, what if he'd stopped? What if he hadn't changed out those barrels? We've talked, we, we already talked during the Battle of Edson's Ridge. It doesn't take much for the Japanese to break through the lines. And then they're at Henderson Field. And if Henderson Field falls, I mean, how long till we're, you know, not at Guadalcanal? We're looking at a different strategy, maybe. It's these little actions that, that carry so heavily through the course of military history. Now, by the end of this fight, Barcelona had killed himself over 38 Japanese soldiers. That's between his machine gun, his pistol, and his machete. In a handful of cases, this fight turned hand-to-hand. 
and in total, over 300 dead Japanese soldiers lay in front of Bassalone's position. Those are the machine gun teams, the two machine gun teams that he led here at the start of the Battle of Henderson Field. Sergeant Bassalone survived this battle, survived the Guadalcanal campaign, and was awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions during the fight. His commander, Lieutenant Colonel Chesty Puller, heard what happened, had reports of what happened, came out and saw what happened, and pushed, 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 and said, no, 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 you don't understand. This is the hero of Guadalcanal. He's the reason we held. Bassalone would return home on a war bond tour. You know, we were needed to raise money for the fight. It was, it was common to bring heroes like Bassalone back home to um, push that effort. He wasn't a big fan wanted to be back out with his men. And he eventually had that request granted, was moved back out to the fight, and leading Marines in combat on Iwo Jima, he would give his life. That's a story um, that we will touch on at another time when we get into a little more detail on Iwo Jima. Now, Sergeant John Bassalone and his actions here is just one part of the overall battle. These fights raged up and down the American lines on Guadalcanal. And in some areas, the Japanese even broke through, prompting Marines to resort to bayonet charges. And that's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.